0: Hi, this is Stavros Yanuka, welcoming you back to WISE Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers in the field. WISE is an initiative of the Qatar Foundation dedicated to building the future of education through innovation. This episode is the fifth in a series of six that explore post-pandemic priorities for education around the world as was the case with the previous episode, featuring Claudia Costant of the Center for Excellence and Innovation in Education Policies in Brazil. At the end of my conversation with our guest, I will be joined by Andrew Jack, Global Editor of the Financial Times, to reflect on the discussion and to exchange views on some of the other education issues that he is exploring. Before I introduce this episode, let me again remind our audience about why when the world is still very much in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, why is this choosing to focus on post-pandemic priorities? Well, for a start, we spent most of 2020 doing an in-depth exploration of education responses to the pandemic, both through this podcast and our Education Disrupted, Education Reimagined series of convenings and the ebook that came out of those discussions. All of that can be found on our website at wwwwise qatarorg So we feel that we've covered this ground well. Moreover, despite the worsening situation in many parts of the world, we remain optimistic that the accelerating rollout of effective vaccines will see the world turning the corner in the not-too-distant future. And in our view, this is precisely the time to start thinking about and planning for what comes next. And there are a couple of questions that are top of mind for us at WISE. Number one, the first set of questions revolves around how well we understand the scale of the challenge, both in terms of learning loss, but also in terms of issues to do with mental health and well-being, as well as the loss of the socializing functions of education. And as a follow up to this, how well are policymakers and education leaders around the world preparing to address these challenges? And the second set of questions revolves around the extent to which policymakers and education leaders are seizing the opportunity offered by this crisis to engage in meaningful and impactful changes to our education systems. There was and still is a lot of talk about the need to build back better. What does that look like in practice? And are we really building back better or simply trying to go back to business as usual? With that, let me now introduce the fifth part of our new series, Post-Pandemic Priorities for Education. Europe is the world's wealthiest continent and the first region in the world to modernize. The scientific and industrial revolutions began in Europe and the first recognizably modern administrative states were established there, with the possible exception of China. Historically, Europe's fragmentation into competing empires and nation-states is seen as both a weakness and a strength. A weakness for reasons that do not need elaboration, and a strength because competition allowed for innovations in policy and practice in fields ranging from military strategy to public finance. Given the historical context, it is not surprising, therefore, that Europe's policy response to the COVID-19 pandemic was far from uniform, even within the collective structures of the European Union. This was very much the case with the education response and is likely to characterize Europe's approach to the post-pandemic era in education. So in terms of education priorities for the post-pandemic era, can Europe reprise its role as the world's policy innovation laboratory? To help us answer this question, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Tracy Burns. Tracy is a senior analyst at the OECD's Center for Educational Research and Innovation where she heads up a portfolio of projects, including Trends Shaping Education, 21st Century Children, and Strengthening the Impact of Educational Research. Her most recent publications are Back to the Future of Education, Four OECD Scenarios for Schooling, Education in the Digital Age, Happy and Healthy Children, and Educating 21st Century Children, Emotional Well-Being in the Digital Age. During our conversation, we discussed recent work done by the OECD to assess the impact of COVID-19 across its member states, the impact of digital learning and the extent to which digital technologies have acted as a lifeline of sorts, which aspects of digital adoption are here to stay, likely policy priorities in the next 18 to 24 months, and moving from digital literacy to digital citizenship. With that, please join me in conversation with Tracy Burns,
1: I live uh, in Paris and work at the OECD, uh, but I'm originally Canadian from uh, Montreal and close to Vancouver. In case that helps situate me, yeah, and, and
0: explain maybe and explain the accent maybe <laughs> A little as bit. well. Tracy, I think as as with all you know, uh, of us who have been, who are involved in education, you, you've obviously been studying the effects of COVID uh, and the implications uh, that has had towards building more adaptive and resilient education systems. It, from from your vantage point, uh, which I have to say, although the OECD is headquartered in, in Paris, it is, it is something of a global organization. It uh, covers the most advanced economies in the world. Uh, you know, from from Mexico to to Australia, and therefore you have a, a a pretty, you know, comprehensive, I would say, perspective about what's been what's been happening uh, around the world. What what do you see being the most pressing issues right now in education?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, you know, in, in a way, we're obviously most familiar with the OECD countries, which, as you've set out, uh, you know, cover Europe, but also North America, uh, parts of Asia, and Oceania. And for those systems, I mean, there's really two timescales that are most crucial, and, and we see them operating both at the same time. So when we think about pressing pressing issues, we're thinking, you know, about today or tomorrow or yesterday, actually, in many cases. Uh, and there we've got, you know, can we keep schools open? Can we open them if they're not open? This has been really the number one priority for most education authorities over the last year now countries in Europe took very different approaches to that some of them stayed open the entire time other ones uh, really prioritized the youngest um, the youngest children and kept those schools open as much as possible other countries took the opposite uh, approach and prioritized the older ones actually the ones about to go into university to make sure their learning wasn't as disrupted so very different approaches. Uh, And the priorities now are, you know, ensuring safety, physical health, but also emotional well-being. And that's perceived safety as well as actual safety, right? Because Mm -hmm. sending your child to school is also about trusting the establishment. Going to school, if you're a student, is about trusting your peers and teachers. And being in school, if you're a teacher, is also about feeling safe and able to do your job. So there's, there's a real health piece there. Uh, but the other really big concern, of course, is learning, and it's been over a year now. Learning has been disrupted in many, many systems. What has that meant for academic achievement? But also, what does it mean for physical and emotional well-being?
0: And and to what extent are you in? You know, in in your, in your wearing your hat as a as a researcher uh, and one that you know looks across different systems. To to what extent are you are you studying the the impact across different different countries?
1: That is absolutely the question. Uh, So right now we have, for example, a survey that's just come back in collaboration, the OECD in collaboration with UNESCO, the World Bank and other large global players have been asking education authorities sort of what the responses have been. Um, So we know what systems are doing, for example, around are they prioritizing vaccines for teachers? something like that, Mm -hmm. have they really, you know, what are their top concerns? And the big concern here is the the most vulnerable kids. Have they really been able to reach them? Have they been able to engage them? Have they learned during this time period? Are they able to bring them back to the school? Because now that schools are open in many jurisdictions, they're finding that there's in a way a worry of a lost set of, of kids who have just sort of gone away and they may not come back. So they're really, really worried about trying to reach out and bring them um, and thinking about what that means in terms of impact is one of the things we will absolutely be focusing on. I think it's really important also to be able to define it and nuance it well because we are thinking about academic loss, right? If you're testing yeah. or examinations, what are you what are you following? But you also have to think about what it might mean for sort of social life or emotional well-being. Those yeah. might be losses too. <laughs> and we need to also find a way to be able to to understand the impact of this entire last year on those elements of child well-being in order to really think about how we want to support students through this. Um, So it's part of it is a measuring question, but part of it is also a definitional question to really think through what do we expect of education Mm -hmm. and how do we define that? And then how do we measure it and then what will we do to sort of, you know, yeah. understand and address the, any losses that might've occurred.
0: Do, do you have a, any sort of ingoing in hypotheses that you're, uh, you're, you're trying to test or you know, any, any kind of intuitions even around what, you know, what might actually be be going on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the big story here will really be around, um, you know, the digital skills uh, in most Most countries, um, of course, the transition, if schools closed, the transition was to online learning, although not all. It should be said that in some OECD countries, uh, examples like New Zealand or Mexico, where they were very aware that there were certain parts of the country or certain populations that they couldn't reach digitally. So they really used the radio, they used TV, they used Mm -hmm. very sort of old fashioned uh, ways of communication to just ensure the continuity of learning. But the majority of the effort was really trying to ensure access to, to, to the infrastructure, to devices, and the skills that are needed. And that's one of the biggest, it's not really a hypothesis, unfortunately. We have very good data around mm-hmm. who is least likely to have had access To devices and a quiet place to work, for example, Uh, and also who is least likely to have been able to have help from their parents, either because their parents are working or their parents may not have the digital skills to help them, and it all points in the same direction. I mean, it's the most vulnerable students that, and and this is not a surprise, right? These are always the ones Mm -hmm. that we've been concerned about. So, in a way, the pandemic has kind of reinforced our concern for this group that they were being left behind before, and we deeply concerned that they will be even further left behind yeah. after this experience
0: and so pres- presumably you know when it when it comes to policy recommendations y- you are going to be in a sense pointing in the direction of you know let's let's prioritize the vulnerable let's pri- let's make sure that we we can help them recover some if not ideally all really of the uh, of the lost ground
1: yeah. And, and understanding, of course, that different people reacted very differently. So for, for kids who had anxiety around school, for example, this may not have been a very difficult period mm. emotionally at all. Yeah. Um, so it's also being able to understand that um, there's a really individual reaction to it, as well as a sort of system level reaction. And our goal is to obviously see the sort of the best for the system, but also the best for each individual. And the the real push here, again, thinking about the immediate term is, is thinking, okay, how can we support learning and the well-being piece? And then thinking about, at the same time, this sort of futures thinking piece, this sort of next 18 to 24 months, next five years, next 10 years. Because what we would expect is that, in fact, shocks and disruptions such as a pandemic are only expected to increase, not not necessarily that there'll be a new pandemic tomorrow, but shocks due to extreme weather events, for example, or mm-hmm. other unforeseen uh, unforeseen uh, experiences, they're actually expected to increase. And so our systems need to become more resilient and adaptable, just as a yeah. as a way of being. Uh, and we need to learn from this experience as well.
0: And and you know clearly, I mean, you've been deep into trying to understand the impact also of digital learning, both, you know, both good and and not so good, let's say, on education and and, and schooling. And to I mean, to what extent are you I mean, let, let me put it this way, has digital learning been a lifeline for us in education this last you know 12, 18 months? Uh, and and how effective has it has it been?
1: The answer is yes and no. Um, so digital edu- I mean The story of this pandemic is very different than the story of a pandemic that might have happened five years ago or certainly 10 years ago, right? So not only were we able to mostly provide access and mostly get devices to kids and their families in reasonable time, I mean, on average across the OECD, but we were able to help teachers to support them. They were able to roll out new lesson plans online. Like there is a huge push and an amazing amount of innovation that happened in this period, it's, it's it's spectacular what we witnessed, mm-hmm. people responding. And the digital part of it really made new solutions possible in a way that would not simply have not been possible three yeah. even three years ago or two years ago. Could it have been done better? Certainly, if we had more time, if it wasn't a shock. But really, considering where we were, it, it's extraordinary how many systems and how many individuals mm-hmm. rose to the challenge and really stepped in um, to try new things, to develop new tools, et cetera. Um, and not just in education we saw of course also industry providers you know freeing up access to broadband uh, striking deals to give free access to poor households uh thinking through how you might actually give devices or give access to devices to from companies to support schools so it was really a, a community effort and even international effort on many levels that we saw now when we think about the digital, we also, you know, access is one piece, but the skills is another. And understanding yeah. digital literacy and digital citizenship, can you actually partake in this digital world, is a much more nuanced question. And there we saw, you know, many more weaknesses, not just in terms of the digital skill level of the students, but also of their parents, who were asked more and more to help them with their homework, in the, especially in early days, uh, and then teachers. Uh, who have been saying for years that they would like more help to to be able to work more with dig, digital um, digital platforms for learning or using digital technology for pedagogy, et cetera. So, so there, I think, in terms of the skill piece, we do see many areas uh, for improvement. And I think we already have a number of different initiatives that are working to address that.
0: And, and again, I think underlying... All this is the is the presumption that uh, you know the, the pandemic has acted as something of an accelerant in terms of the adoption of digital technologies in education, and that that you know many of these are actually here to stay. Do, do you agree with that analysis, or, or or do you see us in some ways trying to sort of wind the 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 clock back for very good reasons to say, look, you know, we we missed the socializing function of school you know parents you know want to get back you know to to work and 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 not having to to act as you know assistant teachers or or you know proxy teachers how should we be thinking about what's here to stay in terms of of uh, digital adoption
1: yeah and and i think your first observation that, that we sort of in many, you know, we, we sort of rushed in and, and made many years progress in a short period of time. I think in many systems, that's absolutely the case, um, not just in terms of being able to shift to online teaching and learning, but really, you know, whether students had access, whether teachers felt comfortable, whether parents would accept that for, you know, not just math drills, but other very different kinds of teaching and learning. And so that's that's a, a window of opportunity that has really seen a, a big growth. And, I, and I, I remain optimistic that we'll actually be able to build on the investment and the innovation that we've seen, that we can continue to develop new forms of teaching and learning and also evaluation and assessment, that all of this will open up the discussion towards thinking about what do we want to keep? You know, what do we want to build on? What do we want to get rid of? And what do we want to rethink and kind of start anew now that we've had a chance to revisit the system. But you're right that actually, we've also been reminded of very basic truths, right? Like a hug emoji is not the same as a hug, really. I mean, and no matter how excited teenagers were that their schools were closed after two or three weeks, they were a lot less excited. So I think there's some very basic truths that emerged and sort of the reminder of the power of the physical and that we're human social beings. It's interesting because we, as you said in the introduction, we put out a book of scenarios for the future of schooling yeah. earlier this year. And we have four scenarios, and one of them is sort of the status quo. And this was the one that many people thought, well, this isn't really going to happen. You know, there's so much appetite for change. We're going to be moving towards one of the other three scenarios, which is really much more digitalized or you know, situated in a community or maybe no schools will exist at all. I mean, it was much more kind of big thinking. And I would say one of the things that this uh, pandemic has done, has done when we work with the scenarios is first of all, it's, it's removed. We we no longer have to explain why you might want to use scenarios. We used to have to start our discussion saying, you know, you need to think about different things that might happen, or you might not be prepared for the future. And now we don't have to, we can skip that part. Now, Everybody goes, oh, yeah, we know, (laughs) right. You can be completely unprepared for something. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the scenario, which is kind of the advanced status quo, is now much more appealing to people uh, and may seem even more likely because there is this sense of kind of hunkering down with what we actually thought and what we really have understood as essential. Mm. I actually, you know, like most things, I think the answer will be somewhere in the middle, uh, yeah. and i do think we will see a huge you know huge changes in sort of teaching and learning and particularly the development of digital tools which i think there's a lot of room for improvement on and i do think we will see that happening but yeah. not at the expense of for example old fashioned hugs or sports classes or you yeah. know, doing things really with yeah. our physical bodies and connecting to connecting to nature yeah. also
0: no i, I absolutely I, I i'm inclined to you know, to, to agree with that assessment in the sense that, if anything, the pandemic has reinforced the, the status quo uh, the, or the value, let's say, of, of, of the status quo. And, and, uh, and the fact that, you know, there are school systems have, you know, have been built over, you know, a, a, at least, say, a century and a half, but certainly in, in uh, many parts of Europe. There's this sort of accumulated knowledge you know, of, of kind of how we do things, how we run a school, what it's there for, that, that I think has been, again, put in the spotlight by its absence, ironically. So what, what, you know, in your mind, what, what do the next 18 to 24 months look like, at, at least in uh, in Europe and, and across the OECD? What, what do you see policymakers prioritizing?
1: The, the The big one will be sort of keeping schools open, Um, you know, the more we're vaccinated and the more the numbers remain low, the more likely that is to happen. So, you know, if all things go well in 18 to 24 months, we would not be expecting to have rolling school closures, for example, anymore. If that goes well, what I'm expecting is really a stock taking of what we've learned from this pandemic and the understanding that we need to prepare for the future, that it's not just sort of okay to have last minute you know, last minute surprises, or we can't be shocked that there is an unexpected event. Again, we really need to take this sort of future element and resilience piece seriously, because this is something that we need to build into our systems. Really, what I'd like to see is a continuation of the conversations around teaching. So, you know, what is the optimal pedagogy for which subjects and what is the tool, including digital tools? So how can we really kind of revolutionize teaching and learning based on the learning sciences, based on all the, you know, the neurosciences, all the different pieces of evidence that we have and working hand in hand with industry and developers to really deliver things that are worth using for teachers, you know, so that they actually find them helpful as opposed to not necessarily useful But, and of course, that are also fun for students. And then also really thinking, I think the other big thing that's happened in many European countries is, you know, questioning what we mean by assessment and when we give assessments. So Mm. in many systems, it just was, you know, unchangeable. It had been 200 years in Scotland that there was a particular examination at a particular time. And for the first time ever in 2020, those were cancelled. And so that's, you know, that's a window of opportunity. And And, and the world
0: didn't end. (laughs) Right.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody blew, burst into flames. There was nothing yeah. happening, and so it's an interesting question. And and I mean, the Scottish authorities, but many all over the all over the landscape, you see the same kinds of questions. Some of them are radical questions. You know, do we need assessments? Do we want to get yeah. rid of things? But some of them are how do we want to adjust and make it better over time? But they're very fundamental questions around what is the role of education and how do we want to. How do we want to structure our system to really help our students get the best that they can from the system? Because at the end of the day, education is about learning and about building future generations and all the other elements, you know, the pedagogy and the assessment, etc. That's all in support of the student. And so keeping the student at the center and really thinking about what we want for that person and those people in the next 10, 15, 20 years I think those conversations have taken a different turn, and I, and I for one am, am really fascinated to see which way they go.
0: Yeah, and you, and you mentioned, I think, I, not I think, I mean, you, you did mention early on that uh, you know issues around you know well-being again at the forefront of the concerns that uh, all of us uh, are having about the impact of this pandemic, and obviously there, there's been. You know quite a lot of discussion. You know, pre-pandemic around, you know, to to what extent should we be rethinking or at least reorienting our education systems to to take you know well-being much more into account um, as a as a desirable outcome uh, of education? Again, do, do, do you see again a an acceleration of thinking and people recognizing that actually? we should be concerned about well-being and not just, you know, in, in a crisis, but but really it should be an integral part of education uh, systems.
1: Yeah, and, and I do think that that sort of, that conversation and the expectations about the role of education, you know, historically it was really about academic achievement. The last even 50 years, I'd say, we've seen a much more emphasis on physical health, the school as a place to learn how to, you know, healthy habits or healthy eating, mm. those kinds of things. And really, even over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen an increasing push to think through the emotional well-being piece of it. Part of it is an outcomes measure, as you said, you know, what do we want students to leave school with? But part of it is actually an input measure and really understanding that in order to be able to learn, you need to feel good. You need to have had breakfast. You need to not be afraid. I mean, these are, you know, these seem sort of basic concepts, but it does mean that teachers and schools are increasingly being asked to look at all of these other aspects of student life. And that is heavily, particularly now, focused on not just, you know, physical safety and physical health, but emotional well-being. Because we did see this rise. We've been seeing for 20 years a rise in anxiety, depression, stress levels, Kids are telling us that they are sleeping less, they feel more pressure to be perfect, more competition. And we acknowledge that even the education, uh, even the education environment is becoming more competitive. And so there are hard questions around what's the best way to support our students. And talking about it is a great first step, right? Being able to acknowledge that you're feeling stressed or anxious or lonely, whatever it is, but also to ask ourselves, what are we doing in our systems? In terms mm-hmm. of academic competition or other elements that might be increasing stress on the students, because this yeah. is a, you know it's it's a system where it's not just all one way. It's, it's students are also reacting to what is expected of them, uh, and I think that's a really important conversation that has already started, but we will we will need to have more of uh, yeah. because the, yeah. the, the statistics <laughs> are extremely clear in terms of the sort of psychological and emotional. Stress that our children and youth have been under um, already for 20 years.
0: And again, to, you know, to to what extent are digital technologies also in part responsible for some of, some of this stress? It's been said, you know, I mean, in the, in the past, if you were say you know, the, the victim of bullying at uh, you know at at school, you you know you you could come at least look forward to to going home, and and in a sense, the you know the bullying would you know, would, would end at the school gate, so to speak. Now, it can, you know, it can follow you on, you know, on social media, you know, very, you know various chat apps and so on. So, to, you know, to what extent has has you know are we again looking at digital technologies, you know, with a critical eye and saying, yeah. hey, actually, we we may need to put in some, at least, some guidelines here as to the use of of digital media by by kids.
1: Um, And so your timing is perfect. Our colleagues in the Science and Technology and Innovation Directorate just yesterday uh, had their recommendations on children in the digital environment signed off by Council, which is made up of all the countries in the OECD. So their governments have signed on to this recommendation. And it's really about safeguarding children and making them feel safe in the digital environment building a future for them because it's it will be it is their digital environment effectively but also empowering them and understanding that they are actors in their own right and when you ask kids what they yeah. you know they don't talk about the fears they actually talk about sort of the opportunities and the potential of the digital environment a lot of the conversation about risks comes from the adults actually so there is a very fine line and we obviously need to do you know, build opportunities while also sort of really being careful about risks. Uh, and for a long time, I must say that one of the first reactions was to think, well, you know, the best way to avoid any kind of harm from a, a digital risk is to, is to avoid uh, access to, you know, to limit the amount of time kids spend online or to try and protect them from different sites. And now the, it's more much more about resilience. It's about understanding mm. that you need to be able to talk about it Kids need to be able to know who they can ask questions if they're not comfortable or if they don't understand. Uh, And they need to be able to understand what they should do if they feel uncomfortable. So if they've been exposed to inappropriate content or if they're being bullied or it's about not just knowing that it's not okay, but knowing what to do. And that's the resilience piece. And so when we think of this and we look at this from the from a policy perspective, and you already said in our in the introduction that we have a book on this the sort of mm-hmm. well-being in the digital age when you when you look at sort of the you know the conversation around digital technologies and and emotional well-being or sort of uh, stress or anxiety there's a there's a lot of hype actually uh, and when you look at the evidence and when you look at what the data are telling us, there's actually very well there isn't any You know, there is no causal argument that one is causing the other. Um, In fact, they are correlated in some ways so that if you are anxious and depressed, you might spend more time on social media and therefore you might feel anxious and depressed, etc. I mean, there can be vicious cycles that develop, but happy kids who are using the Internet are not necessarily going to be reacting the same way to even the same experiences. So. Mm it's it's a really it's important conversation and yeah. i think we we need to have this conversation more because we see a really clear disconnect right we everybody's really worried about their kids and as they should be and one cyberbully kid is one kid too many so it's it's really important to address this and take this seriously but we also kind of need to understand that if we look at cyberbullying statistics for example looking at our pisa test the numbers and the sort of frequency of cyberbullying isn't actually increasing over time and part of that might not be because, I mean, kids are online more and more. So they yeah. they have more opportunity. Uh, and part of the secret seems to be that they actually are better at dealing with it. They can handle it better. So yeah. they're actually categorizing it less often. So it's it's an interesting conversation and, and we need to have more of it, I think, really just to and also asking kids what they think, because we tend not to always do that. But there's there's really great work being done, just kind of trying to isolate and understand what the data are telling us. And then what the mechanisms are behind it, both from an educational point of view, but also from a psychological point of view and a medical point of view, because it's, a, it's not just yeah. an educational problem.
0: Uh, I, I agree. Now, to, to what extent? I mean, so, so if digital technologies aren't, you know, the, the main culprit here, then, then what explains this increase in anxiety and stress levels and, you know, I guess overall dissatisfaction? What, what, what's behind it in your view?
1: Yeah. And I don't know. Um, So, I I mean, the best way to sort of say it's not only digital technologies is to, is just the observation that the data have clearly shown anxiety and depression increasing for sort of the last 20 Mm. years, 25 years. Right. So it's not the fact that in the last five years, people suddenly had access to more smartphones or it's really, it's much more fundamental than that. I think there's two pieces. One is this understanding of, you know, what is the difference between, uh what's called sort of in in the in the pediatric circles problematic internet use which is actually the the negative damaging you know mm. this where you set up this vicious cycle of <clears throat> being online too often or having negative interactions or connecting or gambling or there's many you know many potential risks what is the interaction between that and emotional well-being and there you see very clearly a vicious cycle establishing but it's often a reflection of sort of a, an underlying psychological yeah. condition. So f- people who feel more stressed, for example, or feel more anxious are not sleeping that well, who are, you know, so then it becomes this, it's, it's multi multifaceted. What's actually driving the anxiety and depression is less clear, I think. There's a conversation around it being environmentally connected. There's a conversation about it being also uh, connected to more stresses. there There is an expectation for, for kids to do more, you know, in, in the last yeah. 20 years. there There's less room for them to make mistakes, for example. They can't just run around and have fun or, you know, just goof off the same way. In many yeah. countries, it's really expected that they're going to be doing very well because to get into a good kindergarten, you have to be doing something to get into a good high school. So that pressure has come much, much younger for kids. Uh, and pressures also from parents to, to to excel academically and what that means for a job and later life outcomes. That's part of it, certainly. And then also understanding, you know, what is what does it actually mean? And this is the hopeful piece is we actually talk about it a lot more. And I see this as a, as a silver lining, actually, in the sense that, first of all, being aware of it is hugely important, right? I mean, people who are being bullied or who are feeling anxious are in many cases, suffering in silence. And so they need to be able to feel comfortable to talk about it. So talking about it is great. That will also help us identify. And it also means people are reporting it more. So you're, you're seeing sort of a that's the virtuous part of the cycle where the numbers are rising, but it's also because people feel more comfortable talking about it. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the, the positive part. And that's one last point on this that I wanted to make during the pandemic is, yes, people have spent much more time online and there is a concern about exposure to risks and predators, for example. And, and there is um, some early indications that that there was certainly a, an opportunity for predators to sort of have access to kids more than they did before schools were closed or, you know, there's there was a sort of a, a vicious storm there for parents not able to spend as much time observing them, teachers not able to see what kids were doing online, kids not necessarily having the skills with their new devices, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, so that's definitely problematic. But the other thing is, and this is also something that's new with this particular experience, is there was so many online help tools, whether yeah. it was a support, you know, a support line you could call up. Whether it was a group of peers that you could get together and talk about, I'm not feeling, I'm not okay, I'm, I'm stressed or anxious. This was something we wouldn't have seen five years ago and we didn't have the digital possibility to put in. And I think this is a really a, sort of a positive shining light of this experience is just how many communities but also peers helped out with their friends and even people they didn't know to band together and, and sort of say, if you're not feeling okay... Come and join us. Let's talk about it. And that's something I think that, that it will be fascinating to see that because mm. that was happening all over. And, yeah. and really seeing kids and teachers, by the way, who were very stressed during the pandemic, setting up groups by themselves under their own initiative to talk about these things. And that's something that that's a huge opportunity and benefit from the digital world that we that wouldn't have been possible technically, you know, ten years ago.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, it, it is it, it is an, an undeniable benefit of, of our super connected uh, digital world that you you know it, it's it's a lot easier now to, to to find your 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 tribe so to speak, and and you know people that that you know you can share concerns and and get you know and, and get support from, uh, as you say, much much more accessible now than than even five. 10, Ten years ago, uh, so so to what extent then Tracy is, is is digital literacy the answer here in terms of I mean the, the digital world is is here to stay it's not it's not going anywhere yes you know we we can debate whether you know whether, whether we should all be maybe limiting our, our, our use. Of technology, I mean, there there is such a thing as you know as, as too much even of a good thing, but it's here to stay, and therefore learning how to navigate, you know, becomes I think quite quite critical. And that, again, that's something that you are you know very much. Uh, it, it's it's in your tool toolbox. What what are your thoughts on on that?
1: Yeah, I, I, Stavros, I can't agree with you more. It is here to stay, and and in fact, there's quite clear um, data that it's called um, the Goldilock Goldilocks hypothesis, which has been put forward by um, our colleague Andy at the Oxford Institute In- Internet Institute really thinking around, you know, what are the impacts and how does it help academic learning and social and emotional well being if you if you with the amount of time you spend online and and they see sort of a an inverted U where if you spend too much time you have poor outcomes whether it's academic or emotionally, but also if you spend not enough time online. That's the Goldilocks part, because for for kids these days, right, your friends are online. You're, you know, you go home after school and you're still chatting with them. So if you are not able to do that, that actually seems to have a negative impact for you. So there's Mm. that, you know, that perfect middle, that happy middle, just where you've got really the sort of the benefits And you still don't have as many, you know, you don't have uh, the negative impacts as much. What does it mean for the future and digital literacy? For us, this is the key, really. Uh, We've just put out a piece of report on that, really highlighting the importance of digital literacy and digital skills, particularly thinking through, you know, which systems are able to equip students with the ability to spot, you know, fictitious information, or can they actually understand if something's true or not, or can they judge, you know, the, can they judge whether or not this is coming from a qualified source of information if they're looking at news? In general, actually, across the countries, they're not super good at it. These are 15-year-olds. They do get better if they're taught how to understand what is misinformation or how do you actually protect yourself against spam or phishing or something like that. You can see an impact of the education. Uh, but in general, it's definitely an area for improvement. And that's part of that is the skills. But the other part of it is this extra piece that, you know, once you have digital literacy, the next step would be what we sort of link, call loosely digital citizenship. And that's sort of the fundamental observation. We saw this during the pandemic more than ever, that really now, in order to take part in our democratic process, to be citizens of our world, whether you yeah. in Doha or me here in Paris or somebody, uh, you know, in, in a small town in, in rural Norway they need to be able to, on some level, engage with the digital world, not simply to be able to, Mm -hmm. you know, do a small task, but fundamentally, in order to be able to express their opinions, to be able to be part of the world, to be able to have their voices heard. Uh, And we expect that this will be more and more important in the next 5, 10, 15 years. So there's the access piece, there's the skills piece, which is also literacy. And then there's this concept of citizenship and that's really that active empowered use and really that's our goal for our kids is that they are empowered to use the digital world as they would like for to be creative to have fun to enjoy and be you know learn but also have fun with their friends Um, but also turn it off when they want to and be empowered to go do something else if they choose to Mm -hmm. but as a way to have their voices heard, as a way to be sort of citizens in the world, this is going to become a necessary piece. Yeah. It's not going to go away.
0: No, I, absolutely. And I mean, this is sort of prompting so many follow-up questions that I I think it might be worth a sort of a podcast in it, in its own right. But, you know, what you just said also got me thinking about even things like, you know, should there be a sort of a digital etiquette even, right, in order to sort of encourage, you know, constructive you know, dialogue and 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 critique on uh, in in your online interactions as a you know as a citizen, and we know that I mean adults are probably even more guilty than than children of you know degrading the quality of uh, of, of online uh, uh, exchanges. But but also you know it it also gets me thinking that you know we, we run the risk if we put too much emphasis on. You know, you have to, you know, learn how to make your voice heard in the digital space. You know, you, you you need to do that, otherwise, you're not, you know, you're not a fully engaged citizen. Do do we run the risk then of 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 setting people up for disappointed disappointment and 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 ultimately even maybe low, you know, low self esteem? Because you know, I mean, I I'm speaking personally. You know, I've I've been engaged in the digital space now for for a while in a uh, largely in a professional capacity and you know it, and, and you must know this as well it's not that easy to get attention right I mean it's a it's a very crowded face up out there right so so you know how do we how do we teach I mean ourselves as well as you know our, our children to sort of manage your your you know your expectations perhaps and don't over invest you know, your self-esteem, for example, into how much attention you, you you might or might not be able to to attract, right?
1: And I think I mean I think part of that is unpacking the term by what we mean empowered. Mm-hmm. So um Absolutely this question of netiquette or, you know, what's an ethical way to interact, not just in terms of behavior, but also in terms of how you, you know, the kinds of expectations you have or working with industry. There's a whole package there and we will be working on that. That's one of our main themes in our project um, this coming year. So we're, you know, stay tuned to that for that because we're, it's super interesting questions there and a lot of great research. And then this question of what does it mean to be an empowered user? let's say you and I and and what we're hoping for, for five and 10 and 15 year olds. Part of it is being able to have the confidence and the skills and the access to participate. But part of it is also the, the bigger and the broader concept of citizenship, which is citizenship, even in a very traditional sense, is not about, well, maybe it is for some people, but you know, the Greek ideal of citizenship was not about the person who stood on the soapbox and yelled the loudest. It was about conversation. It was yeah. about listening. It was about, you know, this is the, the old Greek, this is democracy, right? Like it was about being able to also listen and think and the tolerance that comes with it and the way to reach agreement with people who might be very different than you. And so when I think of digital citizenship and when we say we, we are looking for, active yeah. and empowered users, children who are active, empowered in a digital space, we mean not just that they're able to express themselves, but also that they're able to listen to others and hear yeah. what others have to say, and they're able to work with them. I mean, that's one of the big, you know, 21st century skills is problem solving in a group environment being able yeah. to collaborate these are these are the things that we expect if you know if we're thinking in sort of 20 years time in the labor market and what we expect will be sort of important skills for humans to have in a in an in an era of artificial intelligence it's yeah. all the things that humans are particularly good at it's not about did i memorize the multiplication mm. tables right that knowledge computers will always do better than us it's about You know, the human part, what can I Mm. understand? Emotions, emotional sensitivity, those kinds of things, collaboration, tolerance, creative thinking. Those are the ones that it actually seems to be the uniquely human attributes, at least for now. Uh, And those are the ones that we think uh, are increasingly likely to become really central to our understanding of, you know, what is an active citizen and sort of what is the role of, of a human in the modern world and how are we going to interact and and sort of collaborate and coexist in our own way with with artificial intelligence so that's yeah. futures thinking you know none of that is certain we we all know the future likes to surprise us but certainly at least in the next five years this sense of learning how to be part of this world learning how to to walk away also and to to, to unplug yeah. unplugging and sort of just being with nature that's a that's a huge benefit to our systems and just like on the cellular level, level, as well as on the learning level, but also, you know, just that old active listening. Are you, you know, are you somebody that people want to talk to because they also, they are heard when they Mm -hmm. talk to you. And and, I mean, I think that's the part that when we, when we see that going well in classrooms, that's what kids are being taught. It's creative expression and listening. And working with others. And so yeah. I think I hear your loneliness in the digital world. it is it is a it is a very competitive environment, and we all have you know we have a yeah. webinar next week on digital literacy, and uh, there's a lot of voices. But I do think part of it is acknowledging that there's so much going on that you know we we really only have a finite amount of attention and it's about yeah. finding the right niche. Uh, and having the message that is meaningful to people because that's what people resonate with is is the emotion and and the truth that comes that comes with it
0: well and also i mean just to sort of you know piggyback a little bit on that it it's it's also about appreciating that perhaps you ought to it's looking at motivations right and and your own motivations in other words, if you're doing something to because you're attention seeking that's arguably the wrong thing to be. Doing Right. So in other words, you should you should do something because, you know, you intrinsically derive value, you know, and, and whether, you know, whether there's an audience of 20 or or 100 or 1000 is, you know, it, it, it is irrelevant if, you know, if you're deriving and you're, you know, the, the person you're conversing with or, or discussing with are deriving value then, you know, it's of secondary importance, you know, so how many people have, you know, have watched it and how many people have liked it, and you know, and, and so on and so forth. So it goes to motivations, I think, and, you know, I guess uh, second, secondarily expectations as well. But ju- just to go back to the, your, your sort of classical Greek ideal, the, you're right in that that was the ideal. The practice, though, <laughs> and, you know, this was maybe maybe a little... Preview of our digital, you know, of our digital democracy. That uh, you know, at least in, in Athens during its golden age, it was very much dominated by one man. Right, Pericles was was the king of the agora, and and uh, you know, I forget exactly, but I think he, you know he dominated for at least a good twenty or or perhaps you know more years. You know, politics in, in uh, democratic Athens because he he knew how to move the demos right <laughs> mm-hmm. uh it was in in many ways a, a a kind of a precursor of a of a winner takes all kind of system where yes the competition is there but once you get the the network effects going <laughs> you know you're you're uh you know you you become the dominant player so yeah of course, I, I, i'll need to fun. think yeah well, yeah, until he, he passed, right? <laughs> of of a plague.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a positive side of pandemics, I guess. Very
0: topical, yeah.
1: Yeah. One One thing I did want to say, though, is, and there is, I mean, in a way, like you said, it's about motivation in the sense that when you care deeply about something and you're mm-hmm. doing your thing, whether it's art or science, you know, you may labor forever in obscurity. But we also have, you know, Thousands of stories of somebody who was an overnight success, you know, somebody who's a musician, but just discovered and burst onto the scene. Well, it turns out that for 10 years they've been touring and playing small spots and honing their craft. And that's right. You know, they're more surprised than anyone to find out that they're an overnight success because those 10 years were pretty long when they were, you know, on their own on the road and kind of staying up late at night to make it to the next gig and just very topically, you know that the history of why we were able to to sort of muster and create the new vaccine for the pandemic was because some you know scientific teams were working on a quite unpopular idea about a vaccination for cancer and and not really getting a lot mm-hmm. of necessary respect to that you know if they had been following the the sure thing and if they had kind of gone where everybody else had gone we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are now and so There's a moment in time as well for sometimes people to emerge from the shadows and all of a sudden they find, you know, they're the most popular person in town and that may or may not be their goal either. That might not actually be welcome. But I I do think we learn so much by people who have stuck to their own message and have been Mm -hmm. true to themselves, whether it's in science or arts or because they can really revolutionize what we're doing. They can surprise us. They take us out of yeah. our groove and they put us somewhere else and i really think that that makes us all better um and it and it's, it's it's easier it's much easier to go with the flow and be one of the many voices and be everybody agreeing with the the power um in the, you know in in the pericles or uh but the other voices are the ones that in the longer term might have mm. you know the chance to to revolutionize
0: yeah no no you you're, you're absolutely Right, and, and by the way, I don't, I don't mean to, uh, in any way, besmirch you know Pericles as, as, a, as a Greek. I may attract significant opprobrium if, <laughs> if that's uh, that's the impression I, I'm giving. In fact, you know, Plutarch tells us that things went south very quickly after he passed, unfortunately. Hmm. But uh, anyway, enough of classical Greek uh, uh, history. Um, Tracy, I think this is a, a, a good place maybe for us to stop, but you know, we'd love to sort of have you back on the podcast. Um,
1: with pleasure.
0: With, a, with, I think, a particular focus on, on the education futures work. I'm, I'm really curious to debate and discuss that more with you. Big, big fan of scenarios. I think it, they, they're really helpful in uh, allowing you to think the unthinkable. Because if you're just writing a report, you're overly concerned about not being wrong. I think mm-hmm. there's a tendency to, to be overly concerned about not being wrong, and therefore you don't really want to go certain places. Uh, the beauty of scenarios is it, it allows you to speculate freely to a certain extent um, Absolutely. about what the future might be like. So I think that's the where the utility really comes comes in. Absolutely.
1: So, it frees you up and it allows you to... Yeah. To try something new as well. I'm just going to wave this to the listeners because I have yeah. this is the book on the future of the future of education. Happy to come back anytime, Stavros.
0: So it's my pleasure again to welcome Andrew Jack back to Wise Words. Andrew, good to have you with us again.
2: Thank you. Great to see you be here.
0: Andrew Tracy raised a number of, uh, of different points around you know the the priorities. For post-pandemic recovery across uh, across Europe, what what's uh, what's your perspective on on some of the issues that she raised?
2: No, I think uh, a lot of her points um, resonated, uh, and and clearly, yes, I think uh, I think the biggest issue is frankly uncertainty. Um, I think, you know, we can, as, as someone wrote in the FT actually a few weeks ago, the sort of the country that's performed best in the pandemic depends on which month you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know. And certain certain uh, countries, as we know, notably in, in Asia, uh, look to be incredibly well prepared and advanced. Um, in the first few months, the UK looked disastrous. Um, Europe was lagging the UK, but is now catching up. on vaccinations and a number of the countries in Asia including Japan have been much slower on vaccination. Yeah. Um, so, if that applies to the pandemic overall, I think it equally applies to the education systems. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, I think, a fairly widespread consensus that reopening schools is an absolute priority and that young people are probably some of those that will be um, hardest hit in the longer term. I mean, obviously, there's the growing concern about long COVID, even for those who are as it were, lightly affected and not hospitalised. But, of course, particularly in terms of the the loss of learning, the loss of social contact for mental health and and general social-emotional development, and the longer-term impacts, including, of course, the, the costs for uncertainties for employment and the kind of the future debt burden, which will all fall on those next generations, is enormous. But I think equally what's still... Rather unclear is what has been a successful approach, and what are and will be those longer term effects on schooling from different models there's certainly huge um, inequality, digital divide, so both you know the number of uh, children out of school, of those out of school, their ability or otherwise to to function at home in sometimes um, stretched or challenging circumstances, the access or lack of it to even the basic digital infrastructure, and then beyond that, the the capacity of different schools and institutions to engage using those remote technologies. Um, All of that's very much a kind of living experiment, and there's still very little data um, that's thus far able to kind of quantify the extent of the loss and to tease into it let alone to look at what the you know the right policies would have been or the policies that Mm -hmm. seem to have proved better Mm -hmm. so you know we can put together some fairly crude correlations suggesting that um schools that reopened earlier, for example, didn't seem to have a disproportionately heavy impact on a resurgence in infections more generally. Yeah. But we can't really yet say with any certainty what the the long-term implications are or what the causes were, because of course each Society and locality is very different in terms of the drivers of transmission, the onwards effects to teachers and to communities, um, whether it's kids bringing in infection or taking it out um, Mm. and so on. Um, All of them are are, are huge uncertainties really. Um, but I think also, as as Tracy mentioned, I mean clearly, uh, there has been a lot of reflection. Um, there has at least been the benefit compared to uh, if this had happened a few years ago of technology being able to enable more uh, remote learning yeah. that would have been possible in the past, and it is likely at the very least mm-hmm. to lead to an acceleration on the one hand of. The uptake of, of, of remote or hybrid learning in different forms. <clears throat> but at the other, on the other hand, very clearly, and as she said, I think a real recognition of the limitations of technology and a very strong demand and appetite for a return to face-to-face contact, both in the classroom with teachers, but also peer-to-peer ch- with children with their, their friends to kind of re-establish those wider emotional benefits.
0: Yeah. I, I did. I have to c- confess that I, I did find myself thinking during that segment of of, of the conversation, and, and perhaps I should have articulated it. That uh, you know, had we not had technology available, would policymakers have kept schools open? I, I just wonder whether you know, if, if we, you know, we we see technology as the, in a sense, as as a kind of salve, if you will, that allowed us to continue with learning. You know, during during lockdown, but I, I did catch myself wondering whether it—you know—the the causation might also have acted the other way, meaning that because we had technology, it was easier to make the decision to say, okay, let's let's shut schools.
2: I, I don't it's, know. If... It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I mean, I, I I suspect on the whole that the technology and the and the capacity to use it was, you know, perhaps not exactly an afterthought, but I think wasn't the prime driver mm. of decision-making, partly yeah. because, you know, clearly we had an awful lot of school closures in countries and areas where we know there's a big digital divide or an absence of the possibility of people yeah. to work remote. And equally, um, I think, you know, even in those countries that well were very well connected, we saw a huge variation in the extent in use, particularly early in the pandemic. So, I mean, you might argue in the more recent wave of lockdowns and partial closures in, in the last three to four months, that's been more front of mind but i think mm-hmm. it was more of a sort of you know a, a band-aid um that was put in and retrofitted rather than something that was a strategic driver in lots of cases yeah
0: yeah no fair enough also what what did you what did you make of uh, of the view expressed that uh this pandemic is, you know, a little bit of a a sort of a dress rehearsal for, you know, what's, what's to come that, that, you know, disruption may well be a feature of, you know, of life going forward, whether it's, you know, it's driven by uh, climate, uh, the climate crisis, or, or or future pandemics that, that, you know, we ought to really be thinking more broadly about, you know, resilience within the education uh, sector, that this is not, you know something that we, um,
2: you know, we're not going to be repeating anytime soon. Well, I think I think clearly more resilience and preparation for risk is something that you know is very much front of mind at the moment in every area uh, for society. You know, we've seen it in the tensions on supply chain uh, connections, whether it's for vaccines or for cars and all sorts of other mm. um, goods and services around this very globalised world. Um, And that applies clearly equally in education. We do need to think about disruptions uh, and adaptations a lot more than in the past. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that obviously much debate and public focus over the past, let's say, a couple of decades has been around terror and terrorism as being a major disruptor but actually all of the the best sort of horizon scanning exercises that I saw were already screaming that um, uh, pandemics and indeed climate change were much bigger drivers and are affecting negatively um, a far larger number of people than those killed in, for example, terrorist attacks around the world. But unfortunately, those messages have largely fallen on deaf ears, you know, in terms of consistent preparation, in terms of strategy, in terms absolutely of investment. And we reap that cost when we saw how ill-prepared a lot of even the most rich Mm -hmm. countries were in terms of simply even keeping stockpiles of um, protective equipment up to date, for example. Um, And so, again, I think that applies in every sector. And I think certainly in education where, again, as we've discussed in in the years ahead, our children will be in the front line of all sorts of disruption I mean I do think that uh, climate change is is the real existential issue um, of this coming few years that we really need to focus on and clearly we are seeing huge impacts of that in terms of disruption to people's livelihoods forced migration um, other uncertainties including so-called natural disasters that can kind of create short-term interruptions Mm -hmm. to, to schooling amongst other areas but then these much longer term structural shifts that are affecting you know, where schools should be located, how to train students. Now, we have seen, of course, one corollary again and potential benefit of technology is some interesting innovations even around um, uh, remote partial education for refugee communities and we know how much again migration partly linked to conflict but also very much to climate change is driving a surge in internally and externally displaced people including children who then miss out massively on educational opportunities so there is at least some beginnings to draw on technology as a partial solution, or if you like, a sort of compensation for resilience. What it's not doing, of course, is tackling the underlying problem, other than clearly, the more we have a a sort of educated group of children who've benefited from the full value of education, hopefully they are themselves better prepared or indeed less likely to be disrupted in the future. But yeah, it's, it's it's a massive challenge. And I think that the danger is history has shown that typically, you know, societies respond seriously in the short term. And we've seen that with, of course, billions going into the pandemic response, uh, and talks about it'll never be the same. But you know, the lessons of the past, including previous infection outbreaks tend to be after a few years, that fades away and other priorities, rightly or wrongly, come to the fore until full. the next yeah. one comes round.
0: no i mean uh, you know our our, uh, our memories individual and collective tend to be perhaps in this case a, a little too kind yes. uh in, in terms of our capacity to to forget you know th- this this i mean you know your your analysis i think puts you know puts the issue of, of well-being front and center and that was You know, something that we did uh, uh, discuss at length with Tracy, and I know you and I have touched on this in the past as well. I mean, the extent to which uh, we really ought to bring well-being into the into the education mainstream. Again, what what you know, looking specifically at the UK, do do you see that, for example, featuring in uh, uh, in any of the recovery plans that are that are currently being being activated specifically for education, of course?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, there has certainly been focus and rhetoric, and some funding and some programs um, around uh, issues. First and foremost, perhaps, perhaps tackling some of the underlying concerns or drivers of well-being. So, those families that have been in particular stress or fracture, um, and the need to prioritize their children who've often suffered differentially. In every way, from school closures, uh, so isolation learning loss, but also the wider the loss of those wider support networks and social support a lot of the focus uh, certainly in the UK but I think also in in other countries including the US has been as it were directly the classroom interventions around trying to catch up or to adapt mm-hmm. for that learning loss in the UK for example, but also in Australia and in in the US and other countries. As we know, there's a very big focus on tutoring um, and then also, as it were, extension, whether it's uh, moving school hours to to continue later into the evening or over the weekends or for longer periods into traditionally the holidays. Um, So to kind of add to the amount of, if you like, contact time with teachers, I've seen a little bit less on specific, tangible interventions that work around uh, mental health and well-being and and social emotional skills. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of very legitimate calls, I think, to say, you know, let's just not think about cramming facts to catch up on everything academically. Um, There is a real value, uh, including in those extended school hours, of as it were, downtime, social time, informal contact time between students through play, through social activities, and so on. So I think there's a recognition of that. I, I, I think there's a challenge, though, that perhaps the, the evidence base and the nature of the interventions is more difficult to yeah. assess or structure or explain, you know, it's, it's, it's still hugely difficult, but arguably a little bit easier to to talk about, yeah, you know, two extra hours of maths or English or whatever it happens to be a week to work on the areas that seem to be gaps, mm-hmm. it's much more difficult to say, well, what are the the group activities, the informal, the structured or unstructured things that take place? What would be the best practices to to move forward around this? So I think that's more more challenging. And that in turn then feeds into the political debate, such as in the UK, where um, you know, we just had the government's education advisor resign having mm-hmm. recommended a a step up of emergency measure spending if you like over a number of years of, of 15 billion pounds and the government's granted a tenth of that and he's resigned yeah. on the back of it uh, now some of the some of the pushback is you know is or at least the way it's being spun is that um it's not been that easy to prove the evidence to kind of back up yeah the claims for this level of expenditure in a time when there are so many other demands of course for limited um budget so there's i think there's a important debate to be had there um, yeah. but you know perhaps there's also a recognition that you know at least some of the the wider trickle-down benefits as it were of an escalation in spending and the implications that has for enlarging the the scope of activity of all sorts around school would have a broader off benefits been off benefit yeah. for social and emotional support
0: yeah and 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 I guess the implication is that that's not going to happen now because because the money isn't forthcoming
2: Yes, I think exactly. I mean, so there will be some scaling up of activity. And of course, a lot of stuff is taking place informally and sort of outside uh, factors that are measurable yeah. or explicitly funded. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, I think there's certainly a concern that um, a lot more needs to be done to support and invest in this current school age generation to to bring them through in the best possible condition.
0: Yeah, well, so, I mean, certainly an area, um, an area to watch. Before we wrap up, Andrew, what what else is on your radar at the moment in terms of stories that you're pursuing?
2: Uh, well, a wide range of things uh, in terms of um, one one area of, of interest, and this is actually a sort of a global. Uh, uh, kind of issue, but, but is particularly res- resonant perhaps in some lower-income countries, is the, um, the debate around the continued use of, as it were, the former colonial Language as the primary uh, language of instruction, and whether there's a case to switch more to uh, mother tongue or Mm -hmm. to dominant local community language. Uh, You know, it certainly seems rather interesting and concerning, perhaps, that there's at least a correlation between many countries that don't use their own native, widely spoken uh, language um, and uh, the language that's taught really from early stages in primary, English, French, Portuguese, Spanish, Arabic, you know, and I think there is a really interesting debate to be teased out there about whether there are there are many complications, yeah. of course, to this, um, but there is a concern that this is sort of f- Focusing on a, perhaps a false aspiration or a kind of colonial legacy and an idea of education built for elites that isn't serving well the vast majority of children who could benefit a lot more from mm-hmm. uh, at least basic grounding first in the language of their households their communities and indeed even the natural languages of their teachers let's say so that's been that's been a one one area of focus and and we have a fresh round of uh, articles coming out in in a few days on that issue and looking also at some other uh, really interesting case studies and examples Mm -hmm. in different countries including uh, Sobral in Brazil, for example, and, and other countries around the world where there are kind of innovations taking place to try to improve yeah. um, learning outcome and student uh, welfare.
0: And, and, of course, of, oftentimes in, uh, in many of these countries, there isn't necessarily a single you know, n- native language. There, there tend to be several. And the colonial language was sort of overlaid above these. I think think that's an added sort of, you know, potential complication, you know, to to this uh, dilemma, right? I mean, if if you think of, you know, take India, for example, you know, more languages than than Europe, I believe, and sort of English became a sort of a a language to, to perhaps unify those entities as much as as it was, you know, the, the product of colonialism, or, or am I being too generous? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think <laughs> I,
2: I, I think there are, you know, first of all, there's a pragmatic issue, and particularly for aspiration, languages notably English, which have become so global, clearly have a a huge resonance and power. And you're absolutely right. They can sometimes be seen as, for example, in India, but also elsewhere, including much of Africa, where, of course, there was this very, um, you know, kind of brutal carving up of national boundaries with no respect for traditional uh, ethnic groups or cultures and languages. Um, And so the danger of, as it were, favoritizing a single indigenous language is also a political uh, statement that can stoke uh, tension and rivalry rather yeah. than being a sort of unifying initiative and then there are there are clearly practical difficulties particularly as you say if you have multiple uh, languages what is the best one to opt for you know arguably there's some interesting work suggesting if you if you have more Association, if there are fewer languages or the multiple languages are more closely linguistically related, you probably have a better chance then mm-hmm. of building some sort of yeah. linguistic consensus and educational platform. but it also seems cr- crazy when um, on the one hand you know teachers who themselves may be using in English, for example, their second or third or fourth language, uh, teaching that at the basic level to children for whom it might be way more remote and abstract. Um, And some interesting suggestions that actually, again, even if in the first two to three years of primary school, you build the initial blocks of learning around uh, comprehension, uh, potential literacy, oral fluency and so on, in the language that's most natural to them, that actually kind of consolidates it builds uh, language development, and then you could switch uh, potentially even in later primary school years to a different language. But the those children who started in their own yeah. will then advance still further. Actually, even in those in English, for example, or indeed other subjects, more than those children who were, you know, mm-hmm. effectively learning often by rote uh, a system that was completely unfamiliar. And difficult to really engage with in the earlier years.
0: Yeah, and then this is—I mean, this is a, a, again a very, very interesting topic, and one that whose, whose relevance I think transcends developing developed uh, country divide, if you will. I mean, even even here in Qatar, it is—you know—the extent to which you know Arabic ought to be the main language of of instruction is is—you uh, know—not a hundred percent settled yet, right? It, it, you know, there's still a uh, residual desire for, you know, certainly bilingual education. And in Singapore, where I was before uh, moving to Qatar, you know, that, that issue is still sort of bubbling under the surface where, you know, interestingly enough, um, you know Singapore has a mother tongue policy. So alongside English, you're meant to learn your uh, your mother tongue. But in the case of the Chinese, of course, Mandarin was selected and Mandarin isn't necessarily the mother tongue of the sort of ethnic Chinese inhabitants of of, of Singapore. Uh, for many of them, it's it's actually a, a you know a completely different uh, dialect or or language group. You know, it is a topic that that's also, I guess, highly political, right? Because you know it has to do with you know with nation building, and as as you said, where you have a number of different ethnic groups bundled together, the choice of mother tongue could have profound consequences, one way or the or the other, on the politics
2: exactly and we're not going <laughs> to we you know we we we're seeing countries going in different directions at the moment some are experimenting increasingly with that others are, are moving back towards a kind of national language um in some cases a uh, you know one rooted in the local tradition in some cases a uh, an international language um but i think it's it's an area that um you know i certainly think is an interesting one for debate and maybe there's a bit more research and activity and experimentation around Currently, than than we've seen perhaps in the past,
0: but all the, I mean, all the evidence seems to point though towards you know, the, the the mother tongue tends to yield better better learning outcomes, especially for those, you know, the, the younger age groups.
2: Yes, I think the problem is, you know, in, it, it, as in so many areas of education, um, it's quite difficult doing very detailed, rigorous academic studies. Um, a lot yeah. of them that, that exist are quite sort of, you know, um, thinly resourced, small scale, quite difficult to kind of really create a sort of benchmark against which to test A new approach. Mm. Uh, So this is a wider challenge in education compared to, say, for example, health, where, of course, you have a a pretty immediate readout of whether a a patient starts to recover after taking a new medicine, for example. Education, of course, is a much longer and more complex process. So kind of isolating the interventions that make a difference, deciding actually what those interventions should be and how you measure their their impact um, over something that can take months or years of course to really see the full consequences is much more complex but i think it's an area where we certainly need to see much more work and focus
0: it it does stand to reason though that if if you're speaking a language at home that's that's you know dramatically different from the one that you're learning in school that you know you 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 may well be at a disadvantage over someone whose whose home and school language are are the same and even, right. even yeah practical things like you know can your parents help you with you know with homework or you know can you practice you know what you learn in school outside the classroom
2: yes and, and, and you know i see this debate in in the uk for example where i'm involved with a bilingual school and and there's sometimes a perception by parents arriving from a different culture or language group that they must totally throw their child into the English system and sort of in the process, sadly, kind of often somewhat alienate, lose the roots and the references and the richness of their own language, even to the extent of sort of speaking uh, English when it's actually not a, uh, you know, an, a, a particularly comfortable or rich or full experience for themselves. So they're kind of struggling in a in a different yeah. uh, frame of reference. Uh, and actually, I think on the whole, uh, a bilingual curriculum and the idea of full immersion and switching between different languages where it's possible, of course, because, you know, you need the right teaching resources, trained and competent teachers and so on. But, you know, it doesn't actually lead to a, a significant or long-term effect of slowing down progress in either of those two separate languages and it certainly doesn't discriminate in the UK context against acquisition of English Um, even if there might be an initial delay as the the child absorbs the actual um, longer term gains both in terms of the two languages uh, and their their ability to be used, but also wider cognitive skills is much enriched.
0: Again, Andrew, much you know, much that we could keep uh, uh, talking about there, and you know, perhaps we do, you know, we do need an episode of of wise words specifically on on language education and you know, mother tongue versus uh, the more international languages, so to so to speak. But uh, I'm conscious of the time, and I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time and and joining us on, on Wise Words. Always a pleasure. Thanks, uh,
2: thanks very much. Nice to be with you.
3: This is Basim Hijazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into the show where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. What did you think of this episode? We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and you can reach out to us anytime on our social media channels, which you can find in the description. And of course, if you're new to the show, please do consider subscribing for more episodes just like this one. As Stavros mentioned in the intro, this season we're going to be taking a look at some of the world's post-pandemic priorities for the future of education. As part of the season, we published episodes focusing on the United States, India, China, Brazil, and Europe with this one. So stay tuned on our social media channels to be informed on our next episode set to release very soon. Keep an eye on our social media channels to be informed when we go live next time so you can share your questions and comments directly with us in real time. And finally, if you're listening on an iPhone or Mac, consider leaving us a review on Apple or iTunes as that really helps out the show. Once again, a big thank you for tuning in and hope to see you again next time on Wise Words.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, Tracy. I hope I hope that was uh, a enjoyable time well spent.
1: It was. It was super yeah. interesting. I mean, I didn't realize you were so knowledgeable about uh, ancient Greece. Well, um, I think it's
0: it's a, it's a prerequisite. I think
1: for a Cypriot,
0: <laughs> for a Greek Cypriot, yeah.
1: <laughs> I was very yeah. impressed. I was like, oh, I, this, this. I'm learning. I'm learning while listening. Uh, no, yeah. I actually was. I found that super interesting. I hope it was useful for you. Yeah. Um, no. And it was just a a really great conversation. Thank you.